Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and uh, I'm your host as we try to work our way through the Spurgeon sermons that are in the New Park Street and the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit series. This week we're reading from Sermon 73 to 79, and you can follow along with daily quotes and other engagement at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's the Twitter account at Reading Spurgeon. Each week we select a particular sermon that we're going to concentrate on. Our aim is to focus in particularly on that one. If you can only read one sermon a week, this is the one that we want you to read. If you can read one every day, then that's great. But this week it's the 78th sermon in the sequence and it's simply called The Character of Christ's People. It was preached on uh, Thursday evening. November the 22nd, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, and the text is John 17 and verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This sermon is displaying Spurgeon's simplicity and clarity of structure at its very best in many respects. The introduction is barely a few lines long, only a few sentences, just zeroing in on the fact that Christ prays for his particular people, a people who are what he calls an unearthly people. They are not of the world, just as he himself is not of the world. And he has three very simple headings. He's simply going to treat his text, first of all, doctrinally, second, experimentally, and third, practically. Doctrinally, what does it teach? Experimentally, what does it mean and how do we feel in response to it? And practically, what do we do as a result of it? First then, looking at it doctrinally, he's going to lay down a main point and then draw out some specific instruction. The doctrine of his text, he says, is that God's people are a people who are not of the world, even as Christ was not of the world. It is not so much that they are not of the world as that they are not of the world, even as Christ was not of the world. Now, Spurgeon says that's an important distinction, and I hope you feel that it is. It's a reminder that this man is not some bumbling country nincompoop. He's extremely thoughtful and careful as a pastor and a preacher. Perhaps it's one of those texts that we tend to quote only in part, that we are not to be of the world. And what does that even mean? Well, our Lord himself has given us instruction that the pattern for our unworldliness is his own unworldliness, that we are not of the world just as he himself. So we have to look back to Christ in order to understand what it is that our Lord is saying to us. Spurgeon talks about a young woman who thought herself so spiritually minded that she could not work and a very wise minister said to her, that's quite correct, you are so spiritually minded that you cannot work very well, you are so spiritually minded that you shall not eat unless you do drawing directly from the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians. He talks about a, a stupid sentimentalism that certain persons nurse themselves into. They read a parcel of books that intoxicate their brains and then fancy that they have a lofty destiny. And these are the kinds of things that some people use uh, to demonstrate that they are not of the world. 
His point is, that's not remotely what our Lord is talking about. So the distinguishing mark of God's people is that they are different from the world in those respects in which Christ himself was different. We don't make ourselves singular, uh, distinctive, standing out as weird in unimportant points as those poor creatures do, the ones who are too spiritual to work or uh, think that they've got some glorious destiny that uh, they'll never actually accomplish because they'll never actually try anything. But being different from the world in those respects in which the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, our glorious exemplar, was distinguished from the rest of mankind. So then, first of all, Christ was not of the world in nature. What you've got Spurgeon doing now, and it's really helpful for us if we're preachers or hearers, he's unpacking now this doctrine. He's made sure that we understand the sense of the text, and there's actually some kind of application and instruction even in this, that Christ was not of the world in nature. Now, Spurgeon recognises that Christ was not of this world in his nature in a way that is uniquely true of him because he alone is the true God-man, entirely both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. But the Christian man is not of the world, even in his nature, in measure. The distinction between a Christian and a worldling is not merely external, but internal. The difference is one of nature and not of act. We are born again from above. We are in union with this Christ. We are twice born men, says Spurgeon. In our veins run the blood of the royal family of the universe. We are noblemen, heaven-born children. Our freedom comes from our newborn nature. We have been begotten again unto a lively hope, and so we are essentially and entirely different from the world. We are born from above in a way that unconverted men and women are not. And as Christ came from above, in a similar, if not identical way, so our nature is now derived primarily from a heavenly connection. Again, says Spurgeon, you're not of the world in your office. Yes, he was a king, but his kingdom was not of the world. Yes, he was a priest, but his priesthood was not the Aaronic one. Is he a teacher? Yes, but he doesn't teach the way the world teaches. He has no office that could be termed a worldly one. And in the same way, we are primarily in our relationship to God as citizens of heaven, serving not for and in the world, but for the world which is to come. Again, says Spurgeon, you're not of the world in your character, for this is the chief point in which Christ was not of the world. He says, I need to reprove many of the Lord's people that they do not sufficiently manifest that they are not of the world in character, even as Christ was not of the world. He's saying <clears throat> that we don't show ourselves to not belong to this world in accordance with our nature and our office. We behave too much like the people of the world. He says, I'm not talking about the possibility of sinless conduct in Christians, but I am holding to the fact that grace makes men to differ and that God's people will be di very different from other kinds of people. We don't go with the flow. We swim against the stream. We don't drift with the tide of this world. And our character then should be visibly different. 
if in this age there are no different people, if there are none to be found who differ from others, there are no Christians. For Christians will be always different from the world. They are not of the world, even as Christ is not of the world. This is the doctrine. Now, if that's just the doctrine, you're already buckling in for the the practical, aren't you? The application. Because Spurgeon is basically saying, if you in no way differ from the world around you, then you are not entitled to conclude that you are a Christian. If your outlook, your aims, your desires, your goals, your your, your pleasures, your appetites, if, if there's nothing there that sets you apart from the, the people who do not know Christ, it's because you are one of them, not apart from them. It's this kind of teaching that still bites so hard and perhaps as much now, if not more, in our day as it would have done in Spurgeon's. For how many call themselves Christians who live as if they simply belong to this present evil age? And we're fooling ourselves if we say we belong to Christ, we have been born from above, and yet we still live as children of earth and children of the devil. He comes on then to treat the text experimentally. Do you feel this truth? Uh, Can you grasp it? Does it make a difference in your soul? And perhaps here he's becoming even more pastoral because he wants to talk about those points or turning points, he calls them, when every Christian will feel that he's not of the world. What circumstances do we particularly know this to be true in? When this when certain things happen to us, is that when we turn and show ourselves God's children or where we turn and show ourselves truly to be of the world? And the first of those situations is when someone gets into very deep trouble. When you're in trouble, you will show what is really important to you. When you're in trouble, you will reveal your priorities. When you're in trouble, your relationships will be seen to be what they are at their best and at their worst. So, at times of deep sorrow, you're tested. The gold is being tried. Now, have you felt, says Spurgeon, at such a time that you were not of the world? Or have you complained and said, well, I don't deserve this? Did you break under it, he asks? Did you bow down before it and let it crush you while you cursed your maker? Or did you cast yourself upon the Lord and resign yourself to his covenant care? Here's a point, an experience at which we can see where we really belong. Another testing moment, and perhaps this might surprise some of us, is prosperity. It's a terrible thing to be prosperous, says Spurgeon. You might need to pray to God, not only to help you in your troubles, but to help you in your blessings. Because prosperity, sometimes as much if not more so than trouble, tests our true allegiance and our real priorities. The uh, great Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs uh, wrote a, a book about the, uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And he wrote that out of an experience of extended persecution. After that experience came to an end, <clears throat> Burroughs came back to London and really rose very high in everybody's estimation. And at that point, he wrote an appendix to the book because he wanted to make clear that it's harder to be content in prosperity than it was in persecution. So prosperity tests us. 
Do we still care about the things that we said we did when perhaps we were in trouble? Again, says Spurgeon, test yourself in this way in solitude and in company. Think about what you respond to and how you respond to it when you are alone. What takes up your heart? What governs your thoughts? Uh, What are you involved with? And what about company? Company is one of the best tests for a Christian. You're invited to a party. Amusements are provided. They're not exactly sinful, but they're not really holy. And you're thinking, oh, well, it's okay. Yeah, it's not been a terrible evening. It's, It's all been very pleasant and everybody was very nice, but I'd rather be with God's people. I'd rather be praying together or speaking of experience and entering into the realities of of our life with God in Christ. It's a good test, said Spurgeon. Don't just talk of doctrine. Don't just tick that box. Give me doctrine ground into experience. Doctrine is good. We need to know that we're not of this world just as Christ was not of this world, but experience is better. Experimental doctrine. Truth proved in life is the true doctrine which comforts and edifies. And so he comes then at last to practice, and he's going to apply it primarily in two different directions. He wants to apply it to those who are of the world, and he wants to apply it to the true children of God. And in uh, the second case especially, he wants to break that down a little bit more. But again, you can see the clarity and the simplicity of this structure. Doctrine. What does this verse teach us? Experience. What do we feel if this truth is ours? And now practice. What difference does it make to us? Uh, To be honest, if if you're a preacher and you're ever struggling for an outline, that might be one that you can apply to many texts. Perhaps not all, and not all as easily or as straightforwardly, but it's no bad system. If you're not quite sure what else to do, you could simply ask, What does it teach? How should I feel? And what must I do? Doctrine, experience and practice. And so here he is with the practice, speaking first of all to those who are of the world. And here again his Spurgeon's evangelistic emphasis. He's almost always going to have this in some degree of balance, sometimes more to the unconverted, sometimes more to the converted, but almost never not a word for both. So to those who are of the world, whose maxims, whose habits, whose behaviour, whose feelings, whose everything, he says, is worldly and carnal, you need to listen to this. Perhaps you even make a profession of religion. But if there's no difference between you and the worldly, then the doom of the worldly shall be your doom. It's it's more or less the, the whole looks like a duck, walks like a duck, sounds like a duck. It's a duck argument. If you don't act in any way different from those who are unconverted, it's because you yourself are not converted. You are not what you what you claim to be. You are deceiving yourself. The uh, the story he tells of a, is of a minister who went to stay one night at an inn and it was a, a custom that uh, a true preacher didn't need to pay for his bed or board when he went to preach from place to place. So he stopped at this inn and he went to bed and the landlord was listening and he didn't hear the man pray. So when he came down in the morning, he presented him with his bill. Oh, I'm not paying for that, said the preacher. I'm a minister. 
Well, said the landlord, you went to bed last night like a sinner, and you shall pay this morning like a sinner. I will not let you go. Now, what if the same kind of test were applied to us? Do we pray like Christians, or do we neglect prayer like unbelievers? Do we speak and think and act in a way that shows ourselves to be God's people? And bear in mind, it's not merely the absence of scandalous and open sin. It's not just that we've managed to get under control some of the more extravagant vices of the age. It's real positive virtue. It's real growing godliness. We are not like the world in our nature, not like the world in our office, not like the world in our character. And if we are, it's because we are of the world still. If we're still like the world, it shows where we belong. And so we cannot afford to mock God. And now the other side, ending with notes of caution and comfort to the true children of God. By way of caution, <clears throat> consider whether or not you are often too much like the world. In our conduct, do we talk too much like the world? Aren't there too many idle words? Aren't there things that we do and things that we say and uh, things that we engage in that show that perhaps we're not quite as heavenly minded as we ought to be? And he tells a story that he uses on a number of occasions about a preacher who'd been in a country village and his sermon had brought real conviction to a young man. And the young man and the minister walked together after the sermon on their way home. And the young man was just distraught because the man who'd preached so powerfully was just joking and laughing and mucking about, we might say. All kinds of jokes and light sayings, Spurgeon's language. Some years later, that young man was taken ill and sent for the minister. And the minister, dealing with this young man, was, was so glad to hear, first of all, that he'd, he'd preached to him and he'd come under conviction of sin. Well, thank God for that, said the minister. Don't be so quick about thanking God, said the young man. Do you know what you talked of that evening afterwards when I went to supper with you? Sir, I shall be damned and I will charge you before God's throne with being the author of my damnation. On that night I did feel my sin, but you were the means of scattering all my impressions. In other words, that sermon that the pastor had preached earlier, he had utterly undone by his careless and thoughtless speech afterward. Now I... I've yet to see this finally demonstrated as far as I know, but I strongly suspect, not least because of the frequency with which Spurgeon repeats this story, that he may have been the preacher on that occasion. He was naturally a, a, a gregarious and outgoing man, and it reads like the story that he might very easily be a part of. That's not an accusation against him, but that's a, a little suspicion that I entertain about this story. And it's why he underlines how careful we should be to curb our tongues, especially those who are so light-hearted after solemn services and earnest preachings that we should not betray levity. Now, no one's going to accuse Spurgeon of being a doer man, I hope. He was uh, engaging, he was lively, but he was deadly serious when he came into the pulpit 
even where he was himself and humorous. He was not light, not frivolous, not frothy. Even his humour was sanctified to the end of making a point. His point here is that that humour may be got away either with him or someone like him after the sermon and undid the good that he might have done. So cultivate heavenly mindedness. Don't indulge in the spirit of the age. And his last note then, very sweetly, is one of comfort. You are not of the world because your home is in heaven. Be content to be here a little, for you are not of the world, and you shall go up to your own bright inheritance by and by. A man in travelling, says Spurgeon, goes into an inn. It's rather uncomfortable. Well, says he, I shall not have to stay here many nights. I only I have only to sleep here tonight. I shall be at home in the morning, so that I don't much care about one night's lodging being a little uncomfortable. Well, says Spurgeon, this world was never meant to be a very comfortable one for the believer. But you're not of the world. This world is where you're stopping on the way through. You're lodging here just a little while. Put up with a little inconvenience, because you are not of the world even as Christ is not of the world. And by and by up yonder, you shall be gathered into your father's house, and there you will find that there is a new heaven and a new earth provided for those who are not of the world. Now, if you simply run through the outline, that the skeleton of that sermon, it seems almost painfully straightforward. Three headings, doctrine, experience, and practice. Doctrine. I state it, that God's people are not of the world, just as Christ was not of the world. True with regard to their nature, true with regard to their office, true with regard to their character. Then, experience. The turning points at which our not being of this world is made clear. When we're in trouble, when we're in prosperity, when we are alone, and when we are with others. And then, the application in practice, first of all to those who still belong to the world and then to those who are not and to them cautions and comforts to take to heart. We don't need to be brilliant in order to be useful. In fact, this kind of simplicity is really worth cultivating. This kind of straightforwardness is one of the things that the Lord was pleased to bless with Charles Spurgeon. He himself said that uh, often people would come in, he would effectively put words into their mouths, perhaps words he'd already heard from other mouths, and say, well, this is just dreadful. There's nothing clever here. There's nothing eloquent here. There's no great flights of fancy. There's no uh, stunning intellect on display. It's just basic talking Bible to people. It's pressing home truths. I mean, you know, he gets a little bit overexcited. He's clearly in earnest, but this doesn't sparkle. Well, here's comfort for every non-sparkling preacher and here's comfort for every Christian who sits under a non-sparkling ministry. This is just simple, straightforward, sincere word of God preaching. Let's pray then that God's ministers wouldn't try and perform and pretend to be something that they are not and preach so as to gain applause from men. Let's rather pray not only that they would learn to preach with simplicity, 
with clarity and with real spiritual beauty, but also that we would have ears that don't want to be tickled by the things that tantalise and titillate in this world, but rather ears that are open to hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ and to learn these simple, straightforward, central realities of spiritual life and experience, faith and practice for the glory of God in the world that he has made until we come at last to that Mount Zion above where every true believer belongs and at last to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.